Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Facing Death and Beyond. There simply isn't anything more profound in life than dying. And in the passage we're going to look at today, uh, 1 Samuel 28 is the passage. Saul hears. Uh, He's already afraid. Uh, He's about to go to battle the next day, and he's concerned, quite concerned. But he hears directly from Samuel that he will be dead tomorrow. This is his last night on earth. It's a very remarkable, startling passage in a number of ways. It's his last night, and he knows it. And the question would be, what would you do if you knew it was your last night? If you had a confidence that tomorrow you would be before God himself. The question would be, what would a lover of God do in anticipation of that? I think about that question, and the reality is that um, we need to think about it because it is one of those things that is inevitable. It isn't a probability or a likelihood, but that every one of us will stand before God. Some of you have heard me quote before, and I will this morning again, Richard Baxter. He was a wonderful Puritan preacher during the 1600s. He only preached for 16 years before he was ejected from the pulpit because of the Church of England's machinations at that time in 1662. But for 16 years, he was at Kidderminster, and he lived to be 71. Uh, He got married about 45, I think. He was not married until about 45 years old. But when he was about 43, he got very ill. And he thought he was dying. And so he thought, well, the right thing to do would be to study dying and to study life after death. And so he did. And he produced two wonderful books as a result of that. What a remarkable thing that he thinks he's dying and he goes to his Bible and starts studying that very subject. The first book is called Dying Thoughts. If you've never read it, you must go and get a copy and read it. Dying Thoughts by Richard Baxter. It's absolutely remarkable. And then he wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And they're very different books. The Saints' Everlasting Rest is very much a call to take your pulse. The Saints' Everlasting Rest is primarily take your pulse. Do you have a real spiritual pulse? Are you a child of God? And then look to the glories if you are. But Dying Thoughts is much more preaching to yourself about why you should long for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Nothing in this world should hold your attention more excitedly than the idea of going and standing before God and being with God eternally. Dying thoughts and the saints' everlasting rest. And so we're looking this morning at the reality of knowing that and then what would you do in light of that. Will you stand up under the reading of God's words, return in our Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. We're closing out very soon here this book of 1 Samuel. Again, 1 Samuel is primarily the life and reign of King Saul. Chapter 28. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, 
And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by the Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. But what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me, and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you, and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow... You and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Then Samuel immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. And I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you, that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Can you pray with me, please? God, we pray that you would help us now. We live most of our lives, as you know, Heavenly Father, busying ourselves and distracting ourselves from the inevitable appointment that you have made for each of us with you. And so we ask now that this passage has come before us, as we've preached through First Samuel, that you would cause us to have ears to hear. That this day, and by your will this week, that we might turn our hearts and our minds and our thoughts toward that great appointment. God, we ask that you would give us discernment between David and Saul 
and discernment regarding our own souls. Holy Spirit, that you would come and teach us the truth concerning our standing before you. We pray that you would defeat the evil as he would try to come and to derail us even in this hour or following this hour. But God, in your mercy, that you would grant us to lean into this passage with all attentiveness and sobriety to the benefit of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you are familiar with the name William Wallace. He was the governor king, if you will, of Scotland during the reign of of Edward I. He died in, I believe, 1309. Give you some time frame. He was eventually caught and put on trial on August 23rd, a very significant day in the history of England for other reasons as well. But on August 23rd was his trial, and immediately following the trial, he was executed. He was very confident at his trial. They took notes about it, and they have notes still published from that trial. And later it was said about him, every man dies, not every man really lives. Every man dies, not every man really lives. At his trial, he was confident of what he had done. And he did not ask for their forgiveness in any manner. He was accused of treason because he was fighting against the King of England who was trying to conquer Scotland. But he, the Governor King of Scotland, never perceived King Edward to be his king. And therefore he spent much of his adult life fighting King Edward. But finally Edward captures him by a betrayal of a friend and he stands before him in trial. This is what he said at his trial. William Wallace, I cannot be a traitor, for I owe him no allegiance, referring to Edward. He is not my sovereign. He never received my homage, and while life is in this persecuted body, he never shall receive it. He's looking right into the face of death. This is back in an age when executions followed trials immediately. They rarely even gave you one night to contemplate it. And he was aware of that. He went on to say, To the other points whereof I am accused, I freely confess them all. As governor of my country, I have been an enemy to its enemies. I have slain the English. I have mortally opposed the English king. I have stormed and taken the towns and castles which he unjustly claimed as his own. If I or my soldiers have plundered or done injury to the houses or ministers of religion, I repent me of my sin. But it is not of Edward of England that I shall ask part. I won't go into the details, but he was gruesomely executed uh, immediately following that. The reality is, though, he was ready to die because he had lived in such a way that he believed that what he was doing was right. He believed that what he was doing was exactly what he should be doing. And when he got to the very day of his execution, the day of his trial and then execution, he felt he didn't have anything in terms of his general conduct to repent of, that he had, in fact, done what he should have done, and that is lead his people in battle against England. Well, the question for us is, How will we face that day? How will we face that day as we contemplate how we have battled against the devil and against the world and against the flesh? In this passage, we see some pretty remarkable things. Back in our passage here in chapter 28, the first two verses are just really a setup for what's going to happen in chapter 29. They're not directly related uh, to the rest of this chapter. Uh, They're just laying the ground here that there is going to be a huge war between the Philistines and Israel, and if you recall back in the previous chapter, David had foolishly fled to the Philistine king Achish, Achish, and uh, as a result of that, uh, had gotten himself in a bind here. God is going to step in with some sovereignty in chapter 29 and get him out of that bind. But the first two verses here are just acknowledging that the Philistine king believes David's going to help him in the fight against Israel. And then the passage turns to the subject, verse 3. Samuel was dead, and Saul is very, very concerned. And it goes on to say here, 
The reason it mentions Samuel is dead is because Samuel had been alive for several years after King Saul had become king. And he had known, that is, King Saul had known, that if he asked Samuel, Samuel would give him good advice and might even have a direct word from the Lord. But Samuel is dead. And then it goes on to say in verse 3b, And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. I want you to drink that in here a little bit. The reality is here, Saul himself is the one who removed the mediums. And that sounds very religious because it's something that God would have him do. But it is not uncommon that someone might walk for a season or for a week or for a day in what looks like harmony with God. As long as God's purposes and their purposes don't conflict. And in this case, Saul saw no reason not to put them out and so he put them out, and it makes that point there, and it says it again twice later in this, in this very subject, in this very chapter. But we want to be careful here that there is no reason to believe here that there's religion there. It's just a, it's just a, a duty in this very real sense here. He had done that. But we see by the rest of the chapter that he hadn't done it with his heart, as he himself actually later tries to find a medium. So the Philistines, verse 4, gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp, he was afraid, and his heart trembled. The reality is, it's a big army. Saul sees it, and he is greatly fearful. Fear will give us a great deal of irrationality much of our life, and therefore we must be ready for fearful circumstances. In any difficult situation, you will not rise to the occasion. You will default to your level of training. That's what's going to happen. You're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to default to your level of training. And have you trained yourself and your soul as to what to do in fearful circumstances? Saul was overwhelmed and acted very foolishly. What he should have done is reminded himself about the great army of Pharaoh that God drowned in the Red Sea. About the great army of the Amalekites that Joshua fought against while Moses was on the mountainside in his Exodus 17. And while Moses was praying, they were winning. Or about the conquest when Joshua goes in and simply circles the city of Jericho and the walls fall. He should have remembered the wonderful things of God in the past and then preached to himself and then pleaded with God. Jehoshaphat, a good king, sometime later, does exactly that during a difficult circumstance. During a very fearful time, he remembers the great acts of God. And he goes to God in prayer and he says, Are you not the God of the universe? And he recites some of the wonderful nature and attributes of God. And then he says, Have you not? And Jehoshaphat remembers all the things God has done. And then at the end of that prayer, he says, Will you not? Will you not help your people now? Jehoshaphat, a fearful man, excuse me, a faithful man, in fearful circumstances, acts in a very faithful way. But Saul acts very differently. The question this morning is, do you have a biblical plan for responding to fearful circumstances? Do you have a biblical plan for responding to fearful circumstances? Look at verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Well, very quickly, if you're not familiar with that, of course the dreams is obvious. Through Joseph and others, God had spoken through dreams. And so he was mindful that was one option, that God might have spoken either to him, King Saul, or to others and given a message. That didn't happen. The Urim there is a reference to Urim and Thummim. Urim and Thummim is something set forth by Moses in the book of Exodus and then following again in Leviticus. And it's followed throughout the Old Testament. We're not really clear exactly what it means, what it is. Urim and Thummim in Hebrew means lights and accuracy or lights and perfection. It's some form of device. It was something, we don't even know what it was. It was some small item that the high priest held in his garment. It was in the front of his garment. And they actually pulled it out and used it in some way to determine what was the will of God in certain circumstances. There are several references to it. It's even referenced in Ezra and Jeremiah. But he says, as they tried that, so they were aware of that, they weren't getting an answer. Somehow they knew how to determine if this thing is giving you a confident answer. And whatever they were doing, they said, no, it's, it's not happening. And then he goes on and says in verse 6, uh, neither by prophets and no, no prophet set forward. Samuel was not the only prophet, but no prophet had 
a word from God. Is God ever silent is a question to ask ourselves. And of course the answer is no. Is God ever silent? And of course the answer is no. God speaks all the time through general revelation. He tells us all the time that he is present, that he's powerful, that he's wonderful, that he's awesome. Creation tells us that. And so God is declaring that all the time through creation. But then he also speaks through what we call special revelation. And the special revelation that we primarily think of is the word of God. The word of God. Did Saul have that? And the answer is he did. The books of Moses had already been written. But now look back at verse 6. It says, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And it makes no reference to the fact that he searched the scriptures to remind himself of who God is and what great things God had done and how God loves very difficult circumstances. Why does he love them? Well, he tells us in regard to Gideon. God tells Gideon, I want you to have a very small army so that when you win, and you will, everyone will say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I do not want you, Gideon, to think that when you win, you won from your own strength. But Saul had not recently read that passage at this time. And so we are, like Saul ourselves, we need to review, review, review. We need to read, we need to memorize, we need to recall, we need to preach to ourselves the wonderful things about who God is. Jehoshaphat, that same good king that I said to you before, at one time makes an alliance with King Ahab to the north. And at that time he asked, is there a prophet of the Lord that could come and give us an answer? And Ahab had already inquired of 400 false prophets. But Jehoshaphat didn't have great confidence in those prophets. And so he refers to the Lord by name and said, is there not a prophet of Yahweh that we can call? Remember Ahab says this? There is. His name is Micaiah, which means who is like the Lord. There is a prophet. Ahab knows his name. There is a prophet. His name is Micaiah, but I hate him. He never prophesies in my favor. He never prophesies in my favor. Saul is mindful that the message that he's getting from God is not in his favor. And he's willing to do anything to try to pull up a message that would be in his favor. We want to go to the word of God and receive what it has for us. We want the truth. We want the truth, not this false comfort that clearly Saul is seeking here. Many people in Wilmington this morning, in this hour, are seeking false comfort. They're wanting to have their ears tickled. They're wanting to be told that it's all good, that there is peace between them and God, and they have no idea that they may be standing before God before the day is over or tomorrow. They have no idea that God is angry with them because no one's telling them the truth about their relationship with God. Look at verse 7 in our text here. It says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go and inquire for her. Mediums were outlawed by God himself under the law of Moses, and the penalty for being a medium was the death penalty. But look what it says. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a woman who's a medium. They automatically know where to find one. Satan and his servants are readily available. Satan and his servants are readily available when we want to turn away from seeking after God. And Saul has no difficulty finding one here in this situation. Even though Saul himself is the one who removed the mediums and the spiritists. You remember we talked at the beginning of 1 Samuel and we reminded ourselves throughout this book that this book, the contrast of 1 Samuel, is the life of David, a true believer, and the life of Saul, a false believer. And the mercy of the Holy Spirit in this book is that Saul does some good things and is yet not converted. And David, who loves the Lord and is a man after God's own heart, does some foolish things. But we see the difference of their heart for God and the mercy of God to grant David again and again repentance. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is not something you come up with. How badly mistaken we are. It's not something you go get. It's something God gives you. And God gave repentance to David and does not give it to King Saul.
Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also the odiousness and the filthiness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. He so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. God grants repentance. And in 1 Samuel, we see that. And in this case, Saul does not get it. There's no hint in this passage or from here to the end of the chapter of repentance by Saul. I do want to take just one moment and acknowledge that, you know, it wasn't just but a few years ago that the idea of addressing even the concept of mediums, you had to stop and kind of explain that. Today, we're in such a world a religious world, including here in southeastern North Carolina, that we are mindful that mediums, people are aware of mediums, they know what they are, the idea of trying to make contact with people who have uh, died. There is a TV program called Long Island Medium. I just want to bring that to your attention. Some of you, most of you probably already know that. And I just want to acknowledge the insidious nature of sin. That is an incredibly godless thing. And there is a TV show proclaiming this godless thing. And not only is it a godless thing, but if you ever watch it for even a few seconds, she's a very charming, lovely lady. A fun, loving, humorous lady. And she's constantly telling lies to people in regard to their contact of the ones who have gone on beyond and telling them everything's great, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great. Every time she supposedly has a contact with somebody, she's telling them everything's great. Everything's great. We need to be aware that this happens today and we need to speak up and tell people about the foolishness of this and that God prohibits that and how demonic that is. Well, in verses 11 and 12, we begin to see the clarity here. It says, the woman said, whom shall I bring up? So she's used to doing this. She has some contact with, and I want to say, I mean, the the demonic realm is real. We know the demonic realm is real, so it's not surprising that the demonic realm would indeed cooperate from time to time with individuals in the physical realm. That's not inconsistent with Scripture at all. And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Now, here's the question. Is it really Samuel? Is it not Samuel? What's going on here? It's not all that critical. It certainly appears to be Samuel. I mean, from the Scriptures, it appears to be Samuel. The bottom line is it's, he's delivering a message that comes true. The message comes true that Samuel says, so very likely in this case, God is actually allowing Samuel to return, or Samuel's spirit, to return and actually have contact with Saul. That appears to be the case, and God is certainly sovereign and able to do that. Well, immediately she recognizes when he says that he wants her to bring up Samuel, she immediately recognizes who he is and fears for her life appropriately. But he swears to her by the name of the Lord that he's going to spare her. Look at verse 10. Saul vowed to her by the Lord, and that's all capital letters, L-O-R-D, which means that in Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. He swears to her by the personal name of God, saying, as that Lord, the personal name of God, lives, no punishment shall come to you for this thing. That's the words of Satan. There'll be no repercussions from this, Saul says to her. Saul himself is going to die, and she will stand and give an account before God for having been involved in this herself. He doesn't have the authority to say to her that no repercussions will come from this from when God has already forbidden this thing. Well, there is clarity here. In 11 and 12, she sees what's going on and and she's quite concerned. But verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And she says, I see a divine being. It's actually the word Elohim in Hebrew. I I see a God. She sees a very marvelous being. And she describes it as though it were a God. And so apparently this is the, in some manner, a a purified soul of Samuel coming up and speaking. And he asked about the form. And verse 14 simply describes it in such a way so that he could quickly recognize that it is Samuel. God allows Samuel to appear in a way that Saul would recognize. Well, the answer here really begins to come for the key uh, passage here has to do with the message here that comes forth. As soon as, in verse 14 at the end, when he, as soon as he recognizes that it's Samuel, now listen to this, Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. He, he just bows. 
He thinks things are going well. I got what I came for. I'm actually going to have a conference here with Samuel. And he bows down to honor him. This is Saul who does away with mediums and spiritists in obedience to the Lord. And this is Saul now in presence of the prophet Samuel bowing down to him and being honorable to him, giving honor to whom honor is due. Fifth commandment. But this is Saul who does not love God with his heart and is going through all the outward motions here. And we see that more and more as it unfolds. Well, Samuel says to him in verse 15, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me. How foolish to think that if God has departed from him, that God would allow him access to further information. What an what a irrational thought about this, but that is part of fear. Fear brings us to irrationality, and that's why we have to have a plan ahead of time. How are we going to conduct ourselves as children of the Most High God when we find ourselves in fearful situations? Well, he goes on and describes this in, in some detail here, but he actually says, verse 19, Moreover, the Lord also will give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So he makes it clear that your lineage is going to be cut off. You and your sons are going to be with me. Now look at the response. Verse 20, Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten. And I'm mindful of just that simple phrase from the very first, the very first Return of the Jedi movie, or those Star Wars movies. In there, young Luke Skywalker is a pilot. And he's being trained by this very elderly, wise sage named Yoda. And the young pilot says, I'm not afraid. And Yoda looks at him and says, you will be. No matter what you thought before about what it would be like with death, there will be fear associated with death. John Bunyan so wisely in Pilgrim's Progress makes the point that when Christian gets to the river, meaning death, when he gets to the river and he's about to cross over into eternal bliss, the water's much colder than he thought and he draws back. What does that mean? It means he's fearful in the face of death. The water was much colder than he thought, and he drew back. You will be. And here we see King Saul, who is known for one thing, being taller than his peers. He has been a warrior king all of his life. But he's very fearful, and he's trembling at this point. And here we see the reality that God is mercifully granting him to know what is going to happen. Now he knows what's going to happen, but what is his response going to be? His response is not repentance, because repentance is from the Lord, and God is not granting him repentance. There are many, many people who have been told, as long as you live, you'll have the opportunity to repent. As long as you still have breath, you'll have the opportunity to repent. You don't know that. Charles Spurgeon said, most men die like they live. Most men die like they live. You don't know that you'll have a deathbed experience. You don't know that you'll have an opportunity to reflect at that time. And even if you do have an opportunity to reflect at that time, you don't know that it'll be repentance. Now, while you still have the opportunity, is the time to cry out to God for repentance unto life. Now is the time to ask God to fill you with His Holy Spirit, to make you a child of His through the gospel and person and merits of Christ. Now is the time to draw near to God and then to be ready for what you will do in a time of great fear. Christ is also facing a death and an execution in the Bible. And what is his response in that situation? I mentioned William Wallace, and here we've seen Saul, who's doing all the wrong things. Christ goes to his Father in prayer. Christ goes to his Father in prayer and asks for what he wants, and then says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the cry of the Son of God to the Father. And that is the cry of the believer to our Heavenly Father. We can ask for deliverance from our individual situation. There's nothing wrong with that. And at the same time to ask God, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If it will glorify you, then do whatever it is that I'm asking you not to do. 
if it will glorify you. I'm reminded so much by reading Christian history and church history of how many men and women died young in life. Many of them died very young, who we think would have been great servants of God. One of the apostles is executed early on. James, the brother of John, is executed early on in the book of Acts. And all of us would have thought, wow, it would have surely been a good thing for James to live a long life and proclaim the gospel faithfully, and then maybe if God wants to martyr, have have a martyr's death, then toward the end of his life, if you will, toward the end of a long life. That is, that isn't God's wisdom in that situation. We ourselves want to follow in the very pattern of Christ himself. Turning your Bible to Psalm 22, when he is actually on the cross after having already prayed, not my will, but your will be done. The Lord Christ is on the cross as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a remarkable thing that that passage is right there, and that's what exactly what he says, recorded in two of the gospel writers, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It isn't a random phrase. The Lord Christ is not making a random phrase when he makes that cry in the Gospels, having been already nailed to the cross. He's just saying out loud the beginning of Psalm 22 that he's then about to recite to himself. The Lord Christ is studying for his final exams. The Lord Christ is mindful for this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one and to do so by the laying down of his life as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And preparing for his exams, he memorizes Psalm 22. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. He's just quoting Psalm 22 to himself quietly on the cross, worshiping his good God, repeating to himself the confidence in his heavenly Father's goodness, wisdom, power, attentiveness. The night before, one of them draws the sword and he says, put your sword away. Are you not aware that I could appeal to my father? And he would send legions of angels. Christ still knows who that is. But then he gets to verse 21. He says, save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Christ is reminding himself that his heavenly Father, who is not going to rescue him, heard him. His Heavenly Father is not going to rescue him because he understands that he, Christ, came to rescue us. But he also knows his Father heard him. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. And so he completes that psalm with such confidence and hope in God. Christians are to do just that. And the book of Romans, the book of Romans helps us do that. 
But Romans chapter 8 in particular is how a Christian should be thinking in difficult circumstances. Romans chapter 8 is a comfort to Christians in difficult circumstances that God is indeed present and powerful and attentive and good. I commit that chapter to you in its entirety, but I just want to read a portion. And that is verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will this great difficulty that you're facing, including death, separate you from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, Saul didn't comprehend that, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Not even death will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a remarkable comfort that is. Look in your bulletin. In your bulletin is Richard Baxter preaching to himself. This is from Dying Thoughts. In your bulletin, under the title of the sermon, he's preaching to himself under, in the book Dying Thoughts. How clearly does reason command me to trust him? Absolutely and implicitly to trust him and to distrust myself. He is essential, infinite perfection, wisdom, power, and love. There is nothing to be trusted in any creature but God working in it or by it. I am altogether his own by right, by devotion, and by consent. He is the giver of all good to every creature as freely as the sun gives its light. And shall we not trust the sun to shine? He is my father and has taken me into his family. And shall I not trust my heavenly Father? He has given me his Son as the greatest pledge of his love. And shall he not with him also freely give me all things? What did I tell you about his situation when he wrote this book? He was convinced he was dying. He was 43 and 44 years old when he did this, and he was still single at that time. He had not yet married. And he thought he was departing this world. And he's preaching to himself. His son purposely came to reveal his father's unspeakable love. And shall I not trust him who has proclaimed his love by such a messenger from heaven? He has given me the spirit of his son, even the spirit of adoption, the witness, pledge, and earnest of heaven, the seal of God upon me, holiness to the Lord. You'll recognize that phrase. Holiness to the Lord is what was engraved on the turban of Aaron the high priest. And shall I not believe his love and trust him? He has made me a member of his son. And will he not take care of me? And is not Christ to be trusted with his members? I am his interest and the interest of his son, freely beloved and dearly bought. And may I not trust him with his treasure? He has made me the care of angels who rejoiced at my repentance. And shall they lose their joy or ministration? He is in covenant with me and has given me many great and precious promises. And can he be unfaithful? My Savior is the forerunner who has entered into the holiest and is there interceding for me, having first conquered death to assure us of a future life and ascended into heaven to show us whither we must ascend, saying to his brethren, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Shall I not follow him through death and trust such a guide and captain of my salvation? He is there to prepare a place for me and will receive me unto himself. And may I not confidently expect it? Richard Baxter is preaching to himself and doing so beautifully. We need to be such strong people of faith ourselves. We will need it when we get to the chilly river. And we will need it between now and then. John Bunyan knew something about that as well. He so beautifully has a number of people cross over in the second book after Christiana crosses over and enters into heaven. And that also is on the back of your bulletin. One of them is Mr. Honest. Mr. Honest gets the notice that he is to cross over. And here's what it says. On the back of your bulletin, this is from Pilgrim's Progress. 
Then it came to pass a while after that there was a post in the town that inquired for Mr. Honest. So he came to his house where he was and delivered to his hand these lines, Thou art commanded to be ready against this day seven nights to present thyself before the Lord at his father's house. He's given you a week. You have a week to live. That's what he's saying. Then Mr. Honest called for his friends and said to them, I die, but shall make no will. As for my honesty, it shall go with me. Let him that comes after be told of this. When the day that he was to be gone was come, he addressed himself to go over the river. Now the river at that time overflowed the banks in some places. But Mr. Honest, in his lifetime, had spoken to one Mr. Good Conscience to meet him there, the which he also did, and lent him his hand, and so helped him over. The last words of Mr. Honest were, Grace reigns. So he left the world. His last words were not, I'm ready for this, I've prepared, I've, I've done what God asked me to do. His last words are putting his trust in the merits and the person of Christ. Grace reigns. That's another way of saying, I'm a great sinner, and he's a great savior. What is your perspective about life and death? Are you, like Paul, training yourself for battle? Do you see that there are dangers about? That perhaps as you look back over the year 2017, that some of those battles haven't ended well. I said that you need a plan here. We need to prepare. You need a plan. You need to be thinking about what you're going to do. You need to be committed to that. You need to be reminded of that. I started out with William Wallace. Well, William Wallace, before he ultimately was captured himself, was at the Battle of Sterling Bridge, which he won. And at the Battle of Sterling Bridge in 1297, he said this. They literally rode out to meet the English because the English were wanting peace, wanting him to surrender. And of course, he said no. But this is what he said to them to take back to the English king. He said, we came here with no peaceful intent. I wonder if that reflects your life this past week, this past year. Most Christians just want a peaceful life. Francis Schaeffer said what Christians want is personal peace and affluence. He didn't mean that as a compliment. He said he looked at the world and that's what he saw. People want personal peace and affluence. But the Bible describes it as Christian soldiers being in a battle. Here's what William Wallace says. We come here with no peaceful intent, but ready for battle, determined to avenge our wrongs and set our country free. Let your masters come and attack us. We are ready to meet them beard to beard. The Bible urges us to take up the full armor of God, to preach to ourselves. This is a trustworthy statement and worthy of all consideration that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. The prayer on your bulletin there ends with this. Glorify your name in me in undeniable ways. That means let it be clear to me and everyone else that you have done a work of grace in my heart. Glorify your name in me in undeniable ways and bring me home to your everlasting haven of rest. Help me to worship you now and at the hour of my death. Strengthen me. Gladden my soul with this holy privilege. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you. Thank you for the perfect example of true manliness in Christ Jesus, the God-man. We do praise you that he was about his father's business all the days of his life. That in the final prayer, he said, I glorify thee on earth, having accomplished everything you've given me to do. 
God, we see that that does not describe us, but that it does most worthily describe our Lord and Savior Christ. And we praise you for that. That Christ has accomplished everything you ask him to do, including the salvation of your sheep. Teach us then, Heavenly Father, to stay close to such a shepherd. Teach us to preach the glorious, eternal, unchanging truths of you and of your nature and of your gospel and of the blood and merits of Christ that continue to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel. Teach us to stand firm that you are indeed causing all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Teach us to examine ourselves and look for undeniable evidence of a true and lively work in our souls. To examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith and as many as are in Christ Jesus that we would rest in your everlasting arms. That he who began a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. We ask, God, that you would glorify your name in us in undeniable ways and bring us home to your everlasting haven of rest. We pray this, God, in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.